0: This week we are, uh, we are going to begin looking at the next book in a line of books that have been called the wisdom literature of the Bible. We've already looked at a book called Proverbs, probably the most familiar of the wisdom books to most of you. We've looked, we just finished looking at Job, which is easily the longest book of, of wisdom in the scriptures. Now we enter into about six weeks together studying a book called Ecclesiastes. And what we've said about wisdom literature, about wisdom as the Bible describes it, is that wisdom is about good life. That wisdom is about how to live in the world as it is, with eyes that are open, paying attention to what we experience, not explaining things away or coloring them in the way that we wish that they were, but willing to embrace the world as it is live in light of the world as it is, knowing that the world is as it is under God's providence, under the hand of the one who made us and holds everything up, so that it's a way of fearing Him and worshiping Him when we come to the world with eyes that are open, willing to do what needs to be done to live in the world as it is. Proverbs was the world as it should be. Described to us the way to act wisely. The way to, to modeled for us ways of living in the world as it is. That it promised would lead to good things. Proverbs was about the world and its order. About learning to recognize it and to expect it and to appreciate it. Proverbs was a guide for those who wanted life to go well for them. Promising that if you follow the wisdom teachings here. The words of Proverbs 3. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Proverbs is for a world that makes sense. Then we looked at Job. Job as a major pushback to a simplistic way of reading Proverbs. Job as a wisdom that doesn't hide itself from the harsh realities of life. Job as An example of a wise man who for a time was enjoying everything Proverbs promised the wise should enjoy, but then lost it all and it wasn't his fault. If Proverbs is about the order we should expect to recognize in the world, Job is about the hiddenness of that order. What do you do when the innocent suffer? What good is wisdom when you suffer? Now Ecclesiastes is going to add yet another dimension to what wisdom is, to what wisdom means for us as we look at the world that we live in. If Job showed us one who was wise, had it all, and lost everything, Ecclesiastes takes us into the the perspective of one who was wise, who had it all, and who found that it still wasn't enough. Enough. It's the perspective of one who had it all and found it all to be vanity. That's the catchphrase of the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity. Not vanity in the sense that we use it maybe more often today as someone who's vain, who's really taken up with their own image that they're giving to others in the world. More vanity as meaninglessness, as emptiness, as futility, vanity as that which is useless. It occurs 37 times in what's a pretty short book. Now there's a lot of things that are complicated about Ecclesiastes. In in fact, one, one commentator said that close study of this book shows that the thought rambles, repeats, and occasionally contradicts itself. Pretty much spot on. If you give yourself time to read all 12 chapters of this book, you'll see what he's talking about. There's a lot of cyclical themes and language that comes around over and over and over again. And, and there's a lot of stuff in here that we don't immediately know what to do with. He says things that don't sound right in light of other parts of the Scriptures. Sometimes it's hard to tell the perspective of the author. He's, who's actually speaking here and what does he mean for us to hear? Because sometimes you get, you get passages that are almost shocking in their darkness, in the nihilism and despair that the author describes. And yet, then other passages, sometimes popping in with with almost no warning, are very orthodox. They they call us to fear God and just to enjoy what He's given, to to see the good things about the world and to, to claim them as long as our life lasts. I think the best way of making sense out of this book and, and the back and forth that we see here between despair and darkness and occasionally shafts of light that come in and a call to fear the Lord and to enjoy what he's given. I think, I think the best way to make sense of those, that tension is to see the book as a person who's very wise, explaining experience in the world as if there were nothing else but what we experience in this world. There's another catchphrase in Ecclesiastes. Not just vanity or meaninglessness or emptiness, but the phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. This author is trying to imagine. He's putting himself into the mindset of one who doesn't believe that there's anything else in this world except what we see under the sun. Life, in other words, as if there were no God. As if there were no eternal being holding it all together, giving it all its identity, its purpose, and its meaning. He imagines what it is to live as if there's no God. He describes that picture in all of its ugliness. And then he injects hope into that a reminder that there is a God, that he's worth fearing with all of our lives. That if we trust in Him and obey His commandments, we can look to Him for meaning that won't end with our death. It's not always easy to understand this book. It's not always easy to follow the flow. It's not always easy to know what to do with what the book says. But the book is worth the challenge that reading it poses to us. Because as one writer has said, Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the bible i think that's true ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the bible it's a satire on the things that we live for that we in the western world enjoying more tangible benefits than most societies in the history of the world could have even dreamed of it's a satire on our lives obsessed with pleasure with work with reputation with money, even with justice. The things that we are obsessed with. These are things that are empty if all we have is what's under the sun. It's a dark book, Ecclesiastes, a realistic book, but ultimately a book that serves the interests of hope. It's ultimately a book that's that's meant to strip away all that distracts us from what we really need and help us to see Christ with a clarity we couldn't have if all we did was live for what fades away under the sun. Now, I quickly want to make make sure you know about a couple of things that will help you. to If you want to go deeper than what these sermons are going to be able to take you with Ecclesiastes over the next month and a half, a couple of resources back on the resource table. Uh, they're both by the same guy. It's a guy named Derek Kidner. Uh, he was a wonderful scholar of of the bible but who also wrote for people like us who aren't scholars of the bible um his ministry spanned several uh, uh, a couple of decades as the as the uh the warden over a, a bible study center in cambridge england and he produced a lot of commentaries that were helpful to people who were not trained to understand the bible on their own so he he wrote for for us uh he wrote a commentary on ecclesiastes called the message of ecclesiastes look how nice and short that is isn't that awesome? And this used copy could be yours for only $4, or it could just be yours. It's going to be back on the resource table. It's an excellent guide. Um, you're going to want to read Ecclesiastes on your own. It's not long. You could read through it probably several times over the next month and a half. Um, and, and you're going to want some help while you do that, because our sermons are only going to be able to go so far. We're taking some of the main themes. We're not going to be able to cover every verse. Um, there's a lot of verses that don't make sense immediately when you read them, and Kidner's a great help. And if you don't want to read an entire book on Ecclesiastes, I want to remind you about a book we've, we've pumped uh, every new book that we've covered in this series. This is a book called The Wisdom of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes by the same guy. And this one just has individual chapters on each of the books. So you can, you can in 20 pages, read about Ecclesiastes and get a good overview of what it's about and some guide for, for going deeper if you want to from this book. Both of these will be back on the resource table a little bit later. Now here's what I want to do today. I want to give us a bird's eye view of Ecclesiastes. It's going to set us up for the next five weeks after today. I want to introduce Ecclesiastes. I want to introduce it around the question that it poses to us. If Job posed a question to the simplistic reading of Proverbs, what good is wisdom if you're still going to suffer? Then Ecclesiastes poses this question to each of us. What good is wisdom? The wisdom of Proverbs. The wisdom that comes from carefully observing the world. What good is wisdom? If you're still going to die, I want to focus on the three ways that Ecclesiastes helps us this morning. And I want to begin by reading the opening description from the writer of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. If you would please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me while I read from verses 12 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom, and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. About 10 years ago, a social commentator named Greg Easterbrook wrote a really insightful book called The Progress Paradox. How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. It's a good title, isn't it? He looks at all sorts of quality of life issues. He's a sociologist, he's... He's citing all sorts of statistics showing that that on most counts, life has improved dramatically over the last half century. The last 50 years, much less the last 100 years, life has improved dramatically in the West. He looks at things like the size of one's living quarters, how many rooms per person in the average dwelling. He looks at things like air conditioning and the fact that 95% of people living in America have central heat. This was 10 years ago. I don't know what the number is today. Compared to just 15% of people two generations before that. Talks about the access to health care and the ability of health care to fight disease. He he mentions how far work hours, the average work hours in a week have decreased and the average hours for leisure have increased, how the work conditions have improved, how disposable income has gone up so that people have more they can do in their leisure time. It talks about how many people own leisure powerboats, $25 billion spent in 2001 just on recreational watercraft, more than the GDP of North Korea in that year. And all of this stuff is going, he argues, not just to the wealthiest 1%, but to the vast middle in American society. A huge and growing middle class. But all this time, the argument of the book is, all this time, happiness hasn't grown at all. In fact, he says stats show that clinical depression has been rising, this is a quote from the book, it's been rising in an eerie synchronization with rising prosperity. In 2003, when the book was written, clinical diagnoses of depression had increased by 10 times over the previous 50 years. When it's young, it's easy to assume that happiness comes hard, that happiness is something you've got to work for just because you haven't arrived where you're going. Just because you haven't achieved what it is that you want to achieve yet in your life. It's easy to assume that when you're young, but the older you get, the more often you arrive and then feel let down. The more you realize that what you want really isn't what you want. Not really. And this is the perspective into which Ecclesiastes draws us. It's the experience in our life that makes Ecclesiastes sound so modern. And this is the first thing, first way in which Ecclesiastes helps us. Ecclesiastes gets, understands our experience. Our experience is dissatisfaction. The passage we just read from chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes points us towards the author's perspective. We're not sure who wrote the book. Many people have thought it was Solomon. Maybe so, maybe not. Definitely someone who's writing from the perspective of, of one who's at the highest places of authority in the life of Israel, one who was king, one who was wise, who was wealthy, who had power, who had it all. He's a guy who had then what the vast majority of Americans have now, everything he could want for a a relatively peaceful, satisfied, well-supplied life. And he was, above it all, a faithful seeker after wisdom. Trying to live in light of what life is. And what he claims in the passage we just read is that he got there. He was wise. Wisdom provided him with the things you would expect wisdom to provide. And yet wisdom only brought him more sorrow. If wisdom is seeing the world as it is, wisdom is a ticket. To despair. Why? Why is it that according to verse 17 and 18. Wisdom is merely a striving after wind. That leads to more vexation not less. That leads to more sorrow not less. What did he see? Chapter 2 lays out some of the things that he enjoyed, some of the benefits of his wisdom, where his wisdom had gotten him. And one by one, knocks them over as vanity. One of the most memorable images I've seen for the, for, for the things that we fill our lives with looking for meaning is in a, an old book called The Myth of Sisyphus. which describe the things we fill our lives with as stage sets, like for a play that when you look at them straight on, they're all painted up and they look nice, they set the scene, but if you were to see them from the side, what you'd see is that they're just boards, propped up, easy to knock over. That in moments of rare clarity, when wisdom cuts through the, the fog that is hanging over our life, deceiving us as to our real condition, we see these things, these things we thought were meaningful for what they really are. Nothing more than painted up sets that the winds of time will blow over. That's what this author recognized about himself so chapter 2 lays it out we're going to go into these these examples in much more detail in the weeks to come i'm just going to point you towards them chapter 2 lays it all out here are the things he filled his life with that he realized were meaningless he he gave himself to pleasure but realized what use is it verse 2 he turned to wine verse 3 turned to building great works verse 4 He looked to stuff, to acquiring more and more possessions. That's verse 5. He turned to money for its own sake. That's verse 8. He amassed an incredible amount of of possessions for his time. He looked to entertainment. Verse 8. He looked to illicit, no-strings-attached sex. Verse 8. He looked to a reputation, to a life that was better than normal. That's verse 9. And yet verse 10 sums it all up. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep for them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. But verse 11 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I would expended doing it, this full life. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing this man tried worked. Nothing soothed the ache. Nothing satisfied his hunger. And it led him to some soul searching. Verse 12 shows us that he began to question whether wisdom itself was even useful. I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do comes after the king. Only what has already been done. There's nothing left to accomplish. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. It's better to be wise than foolish. That's true. Not pushing back there. Just as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. There's some good in wisdom. And yet, and yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Here in verse 14, chapter 2, our author is pointing us towards the next way in which Ecclesiastes helps us. Ecclesiastes helps us because it gets, it understands our experience of dissatisfaction. It also helps us because it explains our deepest problem. It explains the problem of death. Verse 14 pointed to the author's underlying concern, the thing that ties together his angst about life in the world, the, the thief if you will, that steals away all joy in the things that he'd used to fill up his life. That thief is death. The death that levels all. Verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is vanity. No enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Are you wondering why the things we want always let us down? Ecclesiastes might be unclear in a lot of the things that it says, but it's crystal clear in its main message about why we are dissatisfied. Underneath all of it, whether we recognize it or not, is the reality that we will die. Everything is vanity, everything is empty. Because everything dies. Nothing matters. Nothing satisfies. Because nothing lasts. That's his point. Comes out again and again throughout the book. In a sense, you could say this book is as much about the meaning of death as it is about the meaning of life. About what death does if death is the end. If death is the end and it is if all we know is what's under the sun. If death is the end, then death empties all meaning out of everything we could experience in this life. That's his point. Comes up over and over. We're gonna we're gonna look at some more examples in the series to come, but just wanna point you towards a couple before we move on. One of my favorite is in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses eighteen to twenty one. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. It was bad enough that the wise and the foolish both die. Now he's taking it one step further and he's saying the human and the beast end up in the same place. What happens to the children of man, verse 19, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. It's not easy to swallow, but his point is really clear, isn't it? This week we are uh, pet-sitting for some friends, a guinea pig. And let me tell you, that is a bleak existence under the sun. (laughs) This poor animal is going to spend every one of its days locked in a small cage, defecating in the same place that he eats, sleeping in a plastic igloo-shaped bowl, occasionally taken out to be petted by a gigantic predator that terrifies him. And then this guinea pig will die. And you know what? So will Barack Obama. A trailblazer in so many ways. A man of Massive accomplishment, whether you like what he's accomplished or not. One day he will end up like that guinea pig. And if both lives into the same place, if both will be equally forgotten, then who's to say one of these lives is any more important or more valuable than the other one? We're going to consider more examples in the weeks to come. But death comes up again and again as the culprit behind, for example, the meaninglessness of work. Chapter 2. No one's going to remember what you do. Somebody else is going to enjoy the benefits of what you do. So what's the point of work if if you're just going to die? It's behind the meaninglessness of money. Chapter 3 points us to the fact that you can't take it with you. You were naked when you came into the world. You're going to go out naked. So what's the point? Somebody else is going to enjoy it. It's behind the meaninglessness of justice. Chapter 9 says, if the righteous and the wicked both die, what's the point of seeking justice? And it's behind the final call to enjoy your youth in a beautiful passage we won't read this morning, but well worth your time. The beginning of chapter 12, near the end of the entire book. He basically just throws up his hands and he says, just Enjoy your life while you're young. Before you have realized that your life isn't going to last. And then launches into a long poem. Detailing the things you come to recognize as you grow. As you age. As your body begins to break down. You begin to see yourself more clearly. Enjoy your life before that happens. Because you won't enjoy anything after that happens. That's his claim. And in describing the devastating effects of death. And bringing death front and center to our lives in suggesting to us that all of us view our life through the lens of our death? In that sense, Ecclesiastes is far from modern or contemporary. If the concerns of Ecclesiastes about dissatisfaction make it the most contemporary of books, the culprit that Ecclesiastes recognizes and points us to is one that is not on our radar at all. In some sense, we are as removed from death as any society has ever been. Now, I grant you that our entertainment highlights it and celebrates it, that we gobble up zombie movies, for example, and that every major network will have at least two, if not three, crime dramas on every night of the week that all center around a killing, And that our newscasts will typically start with some sort of murder or traffic accident, some sort of unexpected, unusual death. But that's really the point, isn't it? Death may be there in what we're consuming, but it's unusual. It's other people's death. It's not the slow decline and decay and disease that take all of us. It's a zombie apocalypse that takes imaginary worlds. Death is other, unfamiliar Exceptional, even, in the way that we treat it. It's impersonal and unnatural. And it's not really in our experience very much. How many of you that aren't doctors have actually watched somebody die? How many of you have lost a sibling or a spouse or a child Those experiences were routine. They were expected barely a hundred years ago. Medical advances that we have enjoyed have all but erased diseases that used to kill people by the thousands every year. And death itself now has been turned into a medical experience. A problem that we ought to fight medically. A problem to be fought in medical context so that people don't die in their homes anymore, not like they used to. They often die unconscious, hooked up to machines, in a sanitized medical environment where the battle gets lost. But you know what, friends? The battle is still lost every single time. Death may be our great enemy, but it wins every battle. And nothing about the advances of modern medicine has changed that. The only thing that has changed is our ability to pretend like it isn't a problem. To rope it off into the unusual. To keep ourselves from having to think about it as we pursue the pleasure, the work, the reputation, the money that that guides us in our days and that stirs our hearts for at least a little while. Here's where Ecclesiastes is going to challenge us, friends. Friends. Here's where Ecclesiastes represents wisdom. Ecclesiastes would tell us, it is a fool who will not take death for what it is, place it into the reality of daily life, face up to it, and look for meaning in life in light of it. Not as if it doesn't exist. we tend to see our dissatisfactions and think it's because we had not gotten there yet. We're never happy today. We're always looking to be happy tomorrow. Ecclesiastes reminds us that tomorrow is no friend. That tomorrow we die. Hiding from death in an effort to preserve our happiness has not made us more happy. It's still robbing our joy in the things we think will satisfy us, even if we don't recognize that's what's going on behind the scenes. And Ecclesiastes is an opportunity for long lost clarity. Leads us to the third thing, third way that Ecclesiastes helps us. Ecclesiastes illuminates our need for Jesus, for a deliverer, a Messiah. I mentioned earlier that the bleak perspective of this book is imagined as under the sun. That's its phrase. It comes up over and over again. Interspersed through all these references to life under the sun and the meaninglessness that life is if death is the end, are calls to fear God, to remember Him, to enjoy the gifts that He's given in the brief lives that we live. To live as if there is more than what's under the sun. Ultimately, if there's nothing eternal, if there's nothing that lasts, if there's nothing that is undiminished by the effects of time, then nothing matters. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. Except that the author doesn't believe that there's nothing eternal. There are beams of light that cut through this darkness. He wants us living not in light of what can be seen under the sun, but in view of the God who's forever, whose works endure. Or as verse 14 of chapter 3 puts it, he wants us to see that what God does endures forever. Maybe for you, as you've been listening to this picture of meaninglessness and its darkness and It's despair. Maybe it feels right to you at one level, but doesn't feel right at another level. I wonder if it feels deeply wrong. If there's something in you that is protesting the emptiness this writer is recognizing. Something in you that deeply desires something more, that knows there must be something more. The Bible says, if you're feeling that way, it's because you were made by the God who is eternal. By a God who does what He does and sees it last. By the God who made you in His image. Or as chapter 3, verse 11 says, the God who has put eternity into your heart. He's made you to long for something that lasts. And He's telling you that that something is available. That your experience under the sun was meant to be more than a chasing after wind. That part is really good news. Then you realize what Ecclesiastes also says about your relationship to this God. This God whose works endure is your only hope for a life that isn't defined by your death for something you can do in this life that will have meaning. It's got to have to do with Him, the God who made you and put eternity in your heart, the God whose works endure. But then, Ecclesiastes tells you, in the last verses of the entire book, at the very end of chapter 12, what the book says is the end of the matter. Ecclesiastes says this, Fear God, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God. Will bring every deed. Into judgment. With every secret thing. Whether good or evil. Period. End of book. Now let me translate that for you. The only hope you have. For a life that isn't defined by your death. For life that has any meaning at all rests in the fact that you were made by a God who lasts forever and this God sees what you do this God knows you and will remember you but this God also stands in judgment over you and there is nothing you have ever done no thought that has ever passed through your mind no desire that your heart has ever felt that this God has not seen, that this God will not remember, that this God will not hold you accountable for. So your only hope for a life that has meaning is at the same time a promise that you will be judged. What if he judges you using the standards by which you have judged others? What if he sees everything? What if there is nothing... You can hide from him. What then of your hope for a life that won't be forgotten? Maybe you can see now why one author has described this book as the most striking messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. This book explains to us why we need a savior who would not just show us the way, but who would give his life as a sacrifice, absorbing the judgment that every person who trusts in him deserves. Why, what we need is a Savior whose life wasn't ended even in that judgment, but who would rise again, what Paul calls the first fruits from the dead, the sign that there is more than what happens under the sun. That for those who trust in him, the judgment of God is mercy. Forgiveness taken by the one who did not deserve to die but laid down his life for us all. The one whom death could not hold. The one whose power has conquered the grave. Ecclesiastes is going to help us live in light of and for this Christ. It's going to show us what the world looks like if he hasn't come. Which is to say, it's going to flip the script and show us the beauty of what's possible now because he has come and made us into the children of God who live for the day when the creation will no longer be subjected to futility. Before we pray, I want to end by a section of scripture where Paul pulls out the word that defines so much of Ecclesiastes, the word meaninglessness or futility, and gives it to us as a paradigm of our faith as we wait for him. I want to close with this. I want to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. This is the promise of God to us. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God when we will be shown to be what we really are. For the creation was subjected to futility, meaninglessness, vanity, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Ecclesiastes is our groaning. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Father, we live now longing for lives that won't end, for lives that can have meaning because our work can go on, for lives that we can live in full view of the God who made us in his image and calls us to live for his glory and know that this God sees us and is pleased we long for these lives not lives lived under the sun we know that your promises to us in Christ make these lives possible and yet we also know that we struggle to see Jesus as clearly as we see our problems as clearly as we see our disappointments and dissatisfactions and so what we pray to you is that you would drive us by the darkness of our reality to the light that is Jesus, to embrace Him with full hearts, and to see our lives now in light of what He's done. Help us with this, Christ. we pray in the name of Christ.